0: First Timothy four, seven through 16. But have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. For this reason, we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. Don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy, with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Practice these things, be committed to them, so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. If I haven't met you, my name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. Um, Our series for the new year is called Signs of Life, uh, the Metrics of Spiritual Health. So, to begin the new year, we're asking the question what are the metrics? Uh, What are the vital signs of a genuine and a growing relationship with God? First, Timothy is a great place to look in the Bible to answer this question. It was written by the Apostle Paul. And if you know a little bit about the life of the Apostle Paul, at this point, he had been a Christian for about 30-plus years, most likely. He was passionately devoted to Jesus. He had a radically changed life because of his encounter with Jesus. He was a leader. He was a pastor who had helped others deal with all kinds of spiritual disease and spiritual maladies. And Paul had received a report about what was happening in the church that Timothy was pastoring, a church he knew well, a church church in the city of Ephesus. And so he wrote this letter in response to that report that he got about this church. He was very concerned because From what he heard, he saw all kinds of signs of unhealth at work in the community. So he wrote Timothy to guide him into how to restore health. So when we're reading this letter, the letter of 1 Timothy, we can read it like this. It's like a physician of the soul who's diagnosing spiritual unhealth and prescribing treatment to restore, to rebuild spiritual health for people and for the church as a whole. In 1 Timothy, uh, we've seen a few of these already. Paul gives us a number of pictures or images for the church. He says the church is like a household, the household of God. You can think of the church like a hospital for sinners. We've talked about that in the past few weeks. In chapter 1, Paul himself says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of of whom I am the foremost. So when we gather in a community of people following Jesus, we gather like we're gathering in a hospital, knowing that we all have the sickness of sin and need redemption. He also, uh, in chapter 3, says the church is the church of the living God. It's like a pillar and a foundation of the truth. That language there is the language of a temple. So he says the church is like a household, like a hospital, and like a temple. And each one of these pictures gives us insight into what a healthy spiritual life looks like. So when we think of church, a healthy church where people are growing and becoming more alive spiritually, we should think of a household. We should think of a family. Only in family, in relationships, in community can we become Healthy spiritually, We can also think of a hospital, remembering that none of us comes healthy, we all come broken, so we all come receiving mercy, in need of receiving mercy, and also needing to give mercy to other people who are broken and on the way. We can also think about church as a temple, that a healthy spiritual life is centered on worship, on experiencing the glory, the transcendence, and the bigness of God himself. But in this passage, the one that we just heard read, Paul gives us an image of the church that may be a little bit different, maybe new to us. And based on my experience, it's it's an image that we don't often think of when we think of the church. And that is church as gym. G Y M. The church is to be a gym. For training in godliness. If you look at verse 7, you can underline verse 7. That's going to be our focus this morning if you're taking notes. There, if we translate the word for train using the original Greek, it would sound like this. Gymnase yourself in godliness for the gymnasia of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way. You can see there clearly these Greek words, gymnasia, gymnasia is where we get our English word "gym" or "gymnasium." Recently, I started going to the gym a little bit more because I'm training with uh, one of our sons. He's uh, he's running track, so he's supposed to train. So I'm going with him. Now, can you imagine? Um, can you imagine if you went to the gym and you walk in, you walk into the gym, and there is one person working out? right there in the center of the gym, he's up on stage working out and everybody else is sitting in pews just watching this person exercise. You would go, that's weird. (laughs) Is anybody else going to participate in exercise? That's a little strange. Or if you walk into the gym and everybody is there in the gym and they're sitting at desks and just writing while somebody else is is, uh, in the center of the gym working out. You go, well, that's good. You should probably learn how to do things properly, but is anybody here also going to work out except for that person? Now, there is a time in church to sit in pews. There's a time for us to sit in desks, but the church, Paul says here, is also a gym. So there is time for us to exercise. One of the marks Of spiritual health and the signs of a vibrant spiritual life is training. I know you don't have the outline there in uh, your bulletin, but let me give it to you now. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the requirement for training, it's required for Christians. We're going to look at the reason for training, we need to know why. And then, thirdly, a regimen for training. What does training look like? Requirement, reason, and regimen. Let's start with requirement first. Training is necessary. It's not optional, and this applies to every Christian. If you are a Christian, you are required to go to the gym, spiritually speaking. Look at verse 8. It's Paul's first direct command or imperative to Timothy. All of his other instructions in the letter up until this point are general instructions uh, to the church, and Timothy's supposed to apply that. But here, the first time, he's speaking directly to Timothy, and he says to him, train yourself in godliness. The word train, like we've already seen, is the word gymnasia. It's exercise. Literally, it meant, uh, in this time, exercise naked. That's how how it happened in that time. But Paul is using this in a spiritual sense. He's saying, train yourself. Exercise. For why? For godliness. Godliness is kind of a a hard term to define. What does it mean, godliness? What is that all about? Really what it means is an authentic, observable Christian life. It has an inward aspect and an outward aspect. Maybe an easier way for us to think about this is becoming God. More like Jesus. That's godliness. And though he's talking to Timothy here as a leader and as a pastor, Timothy's life in training was to be an example for everyone in the church. That's what Paul's saying there in verse 12. He says, Live your life in training in all these ways as an example. So, what is commanded here is not just for pastors, it's not just for serious Christians. It's not an optional training program. Timothy's training was an example of the training that's required to become more like Jesus. Now look at verse 9. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. This is the third time he's used this exact phrase or a phrase almost like it in 1 Timothy. This is a common phrase in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus, used five times. It's a saying, and what it means is, don't just skip this. This is a trustworthy saying, full acceptance. Memorize this, repeat it often, get it into your core. Paul is saying, what I'm saying here is true. What I'm saying here is solid. It needs to be fully brought into your life. Now look at, look at verse 9, the question, and scholars uh, write back and forth about this, is what is the trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance? Is it what Paul says before, verse 9 and 7 and 8, or is it what Paul says afterward in verse 10? After studying it this week and thinking about it, most scholars believe that what Paul is pointing to is what comes before. And I agree with that. I think Paul is referring back to verses 8, and also including verse 7. He's saying this, train yourself in godliness for the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way. That's the saying. That's trustworthy. It deserves full acceptance. This is summary of core teaching that the entire church agreed upon and shared. So the idea is like this. If you were to talk to a Christian of the time, and you would ask them, well, how do, you, how do you become spiritually mature? What does growth look like? How do you become healthy spiritually? Paul's goal would have been this. Well, the person would reply, we Christians have a saying about that. And it's train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit. But godliness is beneficial in every way. What Paul is saying is to be healthy. To be alive spiritually, to grow as a Christian, we must train. It's required. There's no other way. This means that no training is a sure sign of spiritual unhealth. And this is sobering. It's a possible sign of having no spiritual life at all, not being a Christian, not having genuine faith. What do you call an athlete that doesn't train? They say, I don't train. I don't practice. Well, you probably say they're either riding the bench. They're not participating in their sport. They're not an athlete at all. Just like being an athlete Paul says, this is a big deal. This is a metric we all need to know about if we were to call ourselves Christians. But there is one exception to this. If you are here this morning and you can love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself without training, then you are (laughs) exempt from all of this. But for the rest of us, we need to train. Now, there's a lot of focus on teaching and sound doctrine here in this letter, 1 Timothy. As Paul is talking so much about teaching and sound doctrine, his point here is that it is to be believed. You got to know it. You got to learn it. But it is also meant to be lived, absorbed into our lives. So Christianity is not only an ascent to a set of beliefs as true. Jesus came, he lived, he died and rose again. It is that, but it is more than this. To become a Christian is to commit to a life of training. Jesus talked about this all the time. He didn't use the word training. He used the word discipleship. When he called people to himself, he said, come and follow me. Be a disciple. We saw this in our call to confession in Luke chapter 6. Jesus said, a disciple, when they're fully trained, will become like their teacher. Christianity is an invitation to become like Jesus. Now, in order to really hear what Paul is saying here, there's something very important that we need to know. We need to know the difference between training and trying harder. We need to know the difference between trying and trying harder. And it wasn't until this week, really for me, that the difference became clear. And I'm almost embarrassed to say that because this is so important to spiritual health and life. It's absolutely essential that we know the difference. That growth and health and spiritual life does come through training. Not By trying harder. What's the difference? You're training, you're exercising, you're in the gym, you're hitting it hard. That sounds like you're trying hard. So what's the difference? Here's where the athletic comparison that Paul makes is so helpful. And I think one of the main reasons he gives us this analogy. Look at verse 8 again. He says, training, uh, physical training of the body is of some benefit, limited benefit. He's not putting down physical exercise here. He's saying it has some value. It has value in how we can learn how spiritual training works from how physical training works. So let me give you an illustration, a few illustrations. Let me start with running. Others have used this illustration to make this point before because it makes it very clear. If you've never run a marathon or a half marathon, raise your hand. That's me. Most of us have not done that. That's okay. Uh, If you never will run a marathon or a half marathon, raise your hand. There we go. Yeah, it's just not going to be a part of your life. That's okay. There is grace for you for that. You do not have to run a marathon. Uh, I am not going to. I'm not planning on running a half marathon or a full marathon in my life. But if what I just said, it just convicted you and you're like, you know what? I'm going to run a marathon. I'm not going to be one of those people who raises my hand at church. And so after the service, you say, I'm going to run a marathon right now. I'm just going to yeah, get my clothes on. I'm just going to run a marathon. Can I ask you what will happen to you? Maybe I can tell you what will happen to me. I will be about, I don't know, five miles into it, and you'll find me on the road lying down over there five miles away, and you'll have to pick me up. But. If you decide today to run a marathon and say, I will train, you can do it. You will be able to run a half or a full marathon. It's very, very possible for you to do that. You could switch. If if running is not your thing, let's talk about golf. Say, I'm going to excel in golf. I'm going to shoot an 80. That's pretty good in golf. That's good for me. I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to go out right now. I haven't practiced in 10 years. I am going to shoot an 80. Try your hardest, you will probably shoot a 180, especially if you've never played golf before. But if you train, and if you start today, and if you learn how a swing works, you could probably shoot an 80. You could do it. If athletics are not your thing, how about music? I don't know how to play the piano, so if I sit down right here at the piano and I try my hardest to play Bach for you, I say, just got to try my hardest, (laughs) nothing will happen. But if I train on the piano for a whole year, I could do it. You could do it. You could train to do any of these things. You know, we would have to start out very small. I'd I'd have to start running three miles and not just two miles. You have to start putting from three feet out. Just get that putt set. You have to learn the notes and the scales. Do you see the difference between training and trying hard? There is a world of difference. It's huge. One leaves you exasperated, feeling like you will never do it. Like a failure, the other gives hope. That growth, that change is possible. Although not easy. Have you ever tried really, really hard to be more patient? Just try. You just said, today when we wake up to go to church, I'm going to be patient today. If you have kids, I'm going to be super patient with the kids. It's a day of worship. After all, there's no yelling on Sundays. I see people laughing right now because how long, how long did that last? How did that, how did that go for you? Well, maybe about one minute into the car ride, something happened and you lost your patience. Have you ever tried really hard to be more joyful? I heard being joyful is important. I want to be more joyful. I'm going to try hard to be joyful. How did that work? Or maybe you've tried really, really hard not to worry so much, to be so anxious, or to stop an unhealthy pattern, or to get out of an addiction. In Matthew 11 Jesus he, sp- he spoke to this he said come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. He said come to me. All who are trying so hard and I will give you rest. But there's more. And take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Let's train let me show you how this is done. There's a world of difference. One more thing before we go on, on the requirement of training. If you're physically unhealthy <clears throat> and you're talking to somebody who's into health or maybe they're a potential trainer and you say, I'm just not healthy right now. I need to get healthy. You know, I, But I just don't have the time to train. I'm too busy to train. Maybe I'll train later. Well, that person, this personal trainer or coach or friend of yours might say, okay, well, think about it like this. Did you know that you are training? But you're actually training to be unhealthy, to have a growing waistline, and for a short life. That's what you're training for right now. That was meant to be somewhat of a joke, but I think maybe that that hit us too hard right now. Our bodies are always being trained for something. If we're sedentary, doing nothing, eating horrible, not exercising, we're training our bodies, aren't we, for something. The same applies to the soul. It's not a question of if we train, but how am I being trained? Training is required. We also need to know the reason for training. If you go to the gym and set up an appointment with a personal trainer, uh, maybe you've done this before, what's the first question they ask you? Well, what, why, do you, why are you here? Why are you here? What do you want to do? What's your goal? Lose weight, to get toned and lean, to get yoked and huge. Are you training for a sport, training your heart? What, what are you training to do? Why do they ask that? Well, they, they need to know to come up with your plan. And also they need that to motivate you when it gets hard because it will get hard. That's the reason. Now, the first way we can miss what's being taught here is to mistake training from trying hard. The second way we can go wrong is if we train for the wrong reason. Both of these mistakes will leave us exhausted if we try, out, try to go and do this. They will leave us less, less healthy and less alive, not more. This is why there are so many exhausted Christians. Maybe that's you this morning. It's because you're training for the wrong reason. Verse 10, Paul tells Timothy, this is why we train. The reason we labor and strain and strive, this is the reason for all the hard work, the blood, the sweat, and the tears, the training in godliness, because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Look closely at verse 10. He does not say, for this is the reason we labor and strive, because our hope is that if we train hard enough, If we labor hard enough, if we become godly enough and reach a certain level, then we will have hope that we might be saved, that we might have earned God's favor on our lives. No, he does not say that. But this is the reason that lies behind so much of our trying hard, trying to earn something from God. But Paul says, our hope is that we are saved by the living God. How? By believing. By resting. By believing. It's grace. This is the reason we labor and strive. We toil, we agonize because we are saved. Not to get something, but because of something we've already been given. What this means is you can see two people doing the same training for godliness, reading scripture, praying, giving it all out effort, being so disciplined, serving others, laboring and striving to obey. One is getting more and more healthy. The other is getting less and less healthy, less alive. It all comes down to the reason that they're laboring and striving, striving for the wrong reason leads to exhaustion, it leads to disappointment and bitterness with God. Look at all I've done. Where is where's the payoff? It leads to judgmentalism and self-righteousness. When you look at people who are not training as hard as you are, especially when it looks like God is blessing them and giving them favor, you're like, I've been training so much. Why are they getting the good stuff? Why does this happen? Because this person is doing it for the hope of earning something from God. That because of our training, God will give us what we want from him. Instead of training to enjoy more of God's gift that he's already given you. The first is self-salvation. The second is salvation by grace. And We have the wrong view of grace. If we think grace is a way that we get out of training... If we think being saved by grace means effort is optional, if that's what we believe, we don't really know what grace is. Let me share a quote from Dallas Willard on this. He's written very um, helpful, helpfully on this topic. It's really small on that screen, so I'm going to read it in my notes. Dallas Willard says this, The path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one, Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. Listen to what he says here. You've never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. And Then he uses Paul as an example. Paul, who perhaps understood grace better than any other human being, looked back at what had happened to him and said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. The disciplines of the spiritual life are simply practices that prove to be effectual in enabling us to increase the grace of God in our lives. Can I ask you this, friends and my Christian friends, when you think of grace, what is the grace that God gives us free and under? what is the gift? What is the grace that I receive by faith in Jesus alone? Is it a free pass? In life, to do whatever I want, and then I get to be forgiven. That is not it. Is it a free ticket to heaven when I die? No, that is not it. Grace is the gift of the life of Jesus Christ in this present life and in the life to come, it is the gift of his status. As righteous and holy and beloved by God, and the life that comes from having this status. What kind of life is that? It's a fully human life, a whole and flourishing life. Live rooted and secure in the love of God, and completely and fully surrendered to his rule. That's what you get, that's the gift the life of Christ for us and in us. Forgiveness and heaven are a part of that for sure, absolutely. Let me read one more statement on this from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In his book, Cost of Discipleship, he talked about the relationship of grace and discipleship. He said, we must attempt to recover a true understanding of the mutual relation between grace and discipleship. Happy are those who know that discipleship simply means the life that springs from grace. And that grace simply means discipleship. Happy are they who have become Christians in this sense of the word. Let me put it like this. When we get grace, here is what we say. The greatest gift that I could ever receive is Jesus saying, when the disciple is fully trained, he will be like his master. Wow, Jesus is going to train me in his life. There's nothing more incredible than that. I get his status. He trains me in his life. That's the reason why we train. Titus 2 says, grace appeared, bringing salvation to all, a free gift. And it trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live godly lives in the present age. Let me share another illustration. Now, just for um, for the purposes of this illustration, imagine that I have prophetic gifts. I can see into your future. I can see the future you. And I say to one of you, I see that you are a runner. Let me tell you what I see. I see you running fast. You are blazing past everyone. And as you're running, you are like smiling. It doesn't even seem like you're trying hard. You're just running. You're looking behind you like, yeah. And you're getting to the finish line and you have the medal. It says first place. It's a gold medal and you're standing up and you are just full of joy. And then I say to you, let's go out and run a mile. And you're like, yeah, let's do it. Or I say to you, another one of you, I've seen into your future. You are going to be the most amazing musician ever. When you play, it's going to be like you and the instrument are one. You're going to be just so joyful. And all the people who hear your music, they're just going to be so full of joy. You're going to bring life to other people. And then I say to you, let's learn some notes. And you say, yes. Yeah, let's learn some notes. Friends, I can say this to you, though I cannot see the future. If you place your faith in Jesus, you are made to become like Jesus. I see you rooted in the Father's love, so secure, so safe, free from anxiety, free from proving yourself. You're secure and at rest. I see you gentle yet strong, humble yet confident, courageous, patient with the broken, passionate for good. And then I say to you, here's the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray it together. Here's the scriptures. Let's read them together. Here is a community. Let's pursue this together. And we're meant to say, yes, let's do it. In 2 Peter, Peter brings all of this together in a profound statement, 2 Peter 1.3. He says, God's divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Peter says, he has given us everything required. Training is required and God has given us everything required. If this is true, training is just opening up our lives and hearts to receive what God has given us in Christ. Training is required. We need to have the right reason for training. If we see that it's required, we say, okay, I get it. It's not trying harder. Okay, I understand there's a right reason, the motivation of the heart. As hard as that is to make sure our hearts are calibrated for the right reasons, you will ask the natural question and say, well, what do I do? What kind of training are you talking about? And the truth is, yes, we do need to have a regimen for training. Some call it a rule of life. We could call it rhythms or routine. Training is not a haphazard thing. It's very intentional. It's very focused. You don't just show up at the gym and go, what do I feel like doing today? Because that's not going to help you get strong or healthy. So we need to ask ourselves, what kind of training do we need to become more healthy, more like Jesus? There are many, many things we could explore here. There are all the means of grace. Uh, They also go by the name of the spiritual disciplines. Things like prayer and scripture. Things like feasting, receiving with thanksgiving. We talked about that last week and celebrating. Things like meditation, memorization, service, self-examination, Sabbath, silence, sleep, journaling. These are a few examples. Instead of going, and we don't have time to go into all of that, that's for another time. Instead of going into that, I want to give you three overview thoughts here for this final point. Based on what Paul says in verses 11 through 16, this is Paul coaching Timothy. And in Paul's coaching to Timothy, we have three things that we need to get started or to examine our regimen for training. The first is practice. Look at verse 15. Paul says, practice these things, be committed to them, be immersed. Our picture of spiritual maturity and health it needs adjustment. We often think of, if I'm healthy and I'm, I'm doing great and I'm alive spiritually, it's just going to be tranquility and bliss. And I'll be floating on the clouds. And if somebody does something that I don't like and I'm wronged, I will just be able to forgive them like an angel. So easy. That's how we think it should be. That's how we want it to be. We say, if it was if I was really spiritual... Things wouldn't be so hard. But if you talk to any great athlete or musician or artist, those who are at the best of their craft that make it look so easy, if we say to them, how, how does it look so easy to you? It comes so easy to you, so natural. They will say, practice, training. Yet very few athletes would say, I love the practice and I love the training. They would say, I love the game, and so I put in time to practice. If your Christian growth and life feels like practice, that's a good sign. There are definitely seasons where it feels smooth and natural and good, but more often, it feels like we're practicing. Malcolm Gladwell, I think in his book called The Outliers, he said in order to become a master at your craft, and he determined this through his research, you have to dedicate... Some of you have heard this, 10,000 hours to the craft. That's If you go 24 hours a day, that's 417 days. If you go one hour a week, that's 193 years. Two hours, 96 years. So if I did the math right there, the point is we don't say, I ran two miles. Now I'm ready for a marathon. When it comes to prayer and silence and service and community contemplation on scripture, self-awareness. We need to practice. We need to put away the expectations that we'll have it all figured out and become easy and engage in these practices. Paul says in verse 15, practice these things and stay committed. In verse 16, he says practice. In 15, he says persevere in these things. In verse 16, there's not a quick and shortcut and easy route to becoming like Jesus. It takes perseverance. Paul here is laying out something that goes by uh, in theological terms, the perseverance of the saints, that all true Christians will persevere and that Christians must continue to persevere. Now, remembering we are in training helps us with the adversities and the hardships of life. When we remember we're in training, we can receive adversity in life and difficulties that come as a part of our training in godliness we could say adversity, trials, are opportunities to practice patience and trust and forgiveness and forbearance, compassion, and our ability to love. Hebrews 12, 11 and 13 says, No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, he says, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. Friends, I know some of you feel like right now, your Christian life is painful. Adversity has come. Hardship has come. And it's painful for you to ask God, why is this happening? Why is this so painful and difficult. Your hands are tired. Your knees are weak. It's like you're walking lame and limping. Hebrews 12 has a promise. God uses all adversity and trials, not to break us, not to dislocate us, even though it feels like that, but to heal us. Adversity and trials are part of how God keeps us on the path of becoming like Jesus. Finally, practice perseverance and paying attention. Verses 13 and 16. Verse 13, Paul says, give your attention to the gospel, to scripture, to teaching it, reading it. Verse 16, he says, pay close attention to your life and to the teaching. Interestingly, in Acts 20, 28, Paul used the same language when he was talking to the leaders of this very church. He said, pay close attention to yourself and to the flock. This is my last point, so listen to this. In our age of distraction, we desperately need disciplines of attention. Maybe more than ever. Every day we enter into a minefield of distraction. The research says 50 to 60% of us, first thing we do in the morning is check our smartphones. And we scroll through email, social media, Whatever it is. And what that does is it primes our brain and trains our brain for a whole day of distraction. We text and we drive. When we eat with friends and family, we're all distracted on our phones. Psychologist Daniel Goleman, who is um, the one who came up with the concept of EQ, he says multitasking is a myth. What it really is is continuous partial attention which over time erodes the brain's ability to focus. So without training ourselves to pay attention, our attention will be divided. Any part of a training regimen in godliness must include two things. Paul says, pay attention to yourself. And you might say, I'm always thinking about myself. Why did he need to tell me that? This is not self-absorption. This is paying attention to your spiritual and relational health self-awareness that comes from God through prayer, reflection, and in community with good friends. And lastly, he says, pay attention to the teaching. Pay attention to the gospel. Don't pay attention to pointless and silliness, things that don't have any lasting significance. Pay attention to the gospel. As you're running the race, as you're training, Paul says, Discipline your focus on the gospel. As the author of Hebrews says, we fix our eyes on Jesus when we're running the race, when we need endurance. Fix our eyes on Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross so that we might follow after him and become like him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We feel the challenge, but I also pray we would feel the promise of liberation in this text. I pray for all of us that we would not hear this or leave this place with a sense of heaviness and a long to-do list, but we would leave this place Excited to ask you, how do you want me to train, God, that I might come to know you, that I might grow in knowing you? May our hearts deeply rest in the fact that we have been given grace, having been received by you, despite the fact that we could never earn it, create in us a new hunger to become more and more like Jesus, our Savior. We pray in his name, amen.